When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's get out our strike advent calendar. Remember, every day between now and Christmas, strike action is being taken somewhere. The run-up to Christmas this year has been unlike any other, marked not just by bad weather and a cost-of-living crisis, but an endless succession of strikes. Ambulance crews are due to walk out for two days on December the 21st and the 28th in support of their pay claim. As ambulance crews go on strike today, the government is still refusing to negotiate. And with the health service now in crisis, the government's only advice to the rest of us is try not to get ill. You raise an important point about the uh, beginning, that there will be disruption to service. And it, it is important that you know, where people are planning any risky activity, I would strongly encourage them uh, not, to, uh, not to, to do so, because there will be disruption on the day. And it's not just ambulance crews or nurses. Later this week, highway workers, border force staff, Royal Mail, rail and bus drivers will all be going on strike. It's a longer-term story that's coming to a head. It's pretty much a perfect storm to create this level of industrial unrest. So why are so many workers up and down the country going out on strike? And how long will this period of industrial action last? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times, I'm Manveen Rana. Today, strikes. Is there any end in sight? My name is Patrick Maguire. I'm Red Box Editor of The Times. I write our morning political newsletter and I report extensively on the Labour Party and the trade union movement. So a lot of my time at the minute is spent keeping track of what politicians are saying about the strikes, but also who is going on strikes and the dynamics and the political debates within the trade union movement and on the left. You've effectively become strikes correspondent. And who would have thought a year ago we'd need one of those? But at the moment, it does feel like everybody seems to be either going on strike or about to go on strike or has already been on strike. Just talk us through all the different groups of of workers going out on strike. This is the busiest month of industrial action since 
September 1979. We're seeing a wave of industrial action across the public and private sectors that's really without parallel in the in the post-Thatcher age. This month we've had health workers on strike. The largest nursing strike in NHS history is underway, with nurses in England, Wales and Northern Ireland taking part in industrial action. We've had rail workers on strike. There will be more rail walkouts on four days around Christmas as well as in January. Buses, highway workers. Postal workers are planning a six-day strike. Airport baggage handlers. Border force guards in passport booths at six major airports in Britain are going to walk out. Of course, ambulance workers as well. Teachers in Scotland, brewers at Green King and coffin makers from the co-op. So almost every sector at some level has had a degree of industrial action. It's not just the public sector, it's the private sector too, which is quite rare that you see serious private sector strikes in this country as well as public sector strikes. Almost every sector of the economy, and particularly public services on which you know lots of us rely, from the public transport to refuse collectors to other public officials, they've all walked out. Of course, the point of striking is to withdraw your labour and demonstrate its value by making things harder to run. And Patrick, why is that happening now? Why are we have seeing this sort of strike rate, which is the equivalent to 1979? What is it that they're striking about? Well, the short answer is, for years in this country, for the best part of a decade in this country, the consumer economy has been defined by two things. One is low to negligible inflation, and the other is negligible interest rates. And the coalition government under David Cameron froze public sector pay for quite some time. Wage growth more generally in this country has been very low. But prosaically, in an economy where inflation is pretty low, and interest rates are low and credit is cheap, the effect of that on the consumer, obviously it's not ideal, but it's pretty limited. But now we've had inflation running at 10% and it doesn't look like it's going to subside until the second half of 2023 at the earliest and more likely early 2024. To a large extent, this is workers saying, well, hang on, I'm not going to put up with a below inflation pay rise. Obviously, you then have the role of union leaders who have their own political priorities as well. But at the root of this, it is a shift in how the British economy works or on the assumptions on which years and years of economic policymaking in this country have rested, i.e. those low inflation rates and low interest rates. Now those two things have changed. The financial picture for households up and down the country has changed, as has the financial calculations that are being made by bosses, by union leaders and by the Treasury. It is a remarkable set of circumstances, but it has also led to people who haven't been on strike before, not even in the 1970s, suddenly declaring that they're ready to walk out. And that includes nurses. Tell us a bit about that. Nurses is a particularly emotive case, of course, because it's very rare that medical professionals go on strike. That nurses have joined this wave of strikes is a sign of just how deep the discontent with that stagnant wage growth is. And also, 
as is the case with many unions across the piece here. It has relatively new leadership in the form of a lady called Pat Cullen, who used to lead the Royal College of Nursing in Northern Ireland, where nurses went on strike uh, a couple of years ago. Nurses have come out, asked for a 19% pay rise, which ministers are determined not to give them. Indeed, they probably won't give them that. But it's a sign of just how serious this period of industrial unrest is, and similarly how relations between this administration and public sector professions or indeed their unions have broken down that it's come to this. And coming so soon after the pandemic and after the country was walking out and clapping for the NHS on a Thursday, it is a very emotive cause. 19% does sound high. Just explain to us why they're asking for so much. How have they been affected in the last couple of decades? The case that the Nurses' Union, the Royal College of Nursing, makes is that nurses' pay has eroded over the past 12 years, more so than in any other comparable profession. They say that if nurses' pay had risen in line with inflation since 2010, the average nurse would be on £40,000, whereas actually the typical salary for a full-time NHS nurse now is £36,000, and many are on less. And again, we come back to this isn't necessarily a knee-jerk response in many sectors to what's happened over the past year with rising inflation. It is the culmination of an extended period of stagnant wage growth, which has been thrown into very harsh relief, or rather been sort of exposed by the past year. Patrick, you said earlier that this month in December we're seeing more strikes than we've seen in any month since 1979. We know that in October we lost more working days due to strikes than we had for over 10 years. Take us back to the 1970s. Just remind us what the picture was like then. Friday, the 7th of January, the last shift at Armthorpe near Doncaster and the beginning of the miners' first national strike for nearly 50 years. Their last was the general strike of 1926. A lot of people have been calling this a second winter of discontent. And the winter of discontent, that period in 1978 and 1979, when you had union membership across all sectors of the economy running much, much higher than it is now. A majority of workers were were unionised. Unions had much more power. They could do things like mount secondary pickets, i.e. if one industry was on strike, workers in other unions could go and support them. Sort of sympathy striking. Exactly, exactly. Uh, The threshold for striking that they had to meet in ballots were were much lower. So striking was easier and union membership much more pervasive across the economy. So obviously more days were lost to strike action because more unions went on strike. In terms of why it happened, the winter of discontent, people may forget it was a Labour government in the 1970s that presided over our last period of serious industrial unrest. And then again, it was all about pay. It was all about pay and conditions in an era of high inflation. So that's why by 1978-79, you have, as we now remember, in a sort of slightly semi-mythologised version of this, that the dead went unburied and rubbish piled up in the streets. Berwick Street Market in central London. This 12-foot-high pile is part of two weeks' rubbish just from the market because of the dustman's indefinite strike. But actually, this was the culmination of a much longer period of strikes 
over that decade by miners in the early 70s. And by 78, 79, you're seeing similar groups of people on strike today. You know, you have railway workers, hauliers. There's still no sign of a general return to work by the lorry drivers, but in Tyneside and Wearside this morning, the men have voted to accept the employer's £64 payoff. Public sector workers. Local authority manual workers are continuing their industrial action after the breakdown of pay talks yesterday. Public sector officials, you have hospital workers on strike during that period. Almost half the country's 2,300 hospitals have been forced to operate an emergencies-only service. But, you know, why does the winter of discontent happen? Well, similar reason. You have a period of prolonged inflation and unions making pay demands. Energy price crisis. Yes, exactly, exactly. Edward Heath found that, much like Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, that events abroad can send your energy spiralling, in this case the OPEC oil embargo of the early 1970s. Good evening. The Middle East war produced developments all over the world today. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon. They will reduce oil production by 5% a month. Less Arab oil won't hurt the United States much, but it will pose quite severe problems for the West European countries. And then a lot of economic assumptions are then upended because prices rise and then people make demands for higher pay. And the key difference between the 70s and today is that at that point, unions are asking for, and indeed in some cases are often getting, double-digit pay increases. That was a driver of inflation, whereas right now, and the government fears that this history may repeat itself in this regard, but right now the demands for pay increases are a response to inflation rather than a driver of it. The government now fears that if, say, you gave 19% to the nurses, that embeds high inflation in the system, and what happens this time next year is that a similar pay rise is expected. And that's the cycle Edward Heath and James Callaghan and Harold Wilson's administrations Mm. found themselves in in the 70s, a sort of cycle of high inflation driven in part by that wage price spiral that the unions were sort of enthusiastic participants in. And if you look back, it's, it's quite striking. I was rereading a lot of the first-hand primary accounts of this period. And it's really interesting reading the accounts of people like Bernard Donoghue, who was a senior policy advisor to Harold Wilson and James Callaghan during that period in number 10. And it's both very resonant and striking just how bitter these disputes were, particularly given it was red on red at this point. It was a Labour government and the unions. Pure contempt for striking workers permeated the uh, thinking of the Labour government at this time. And, And ultimately, it was that sense that the country wasn't working, that everything had broken down a model of governing the country via statutory prices and incomes policy and giving the unions a seat at the table had failed and ultimately it was one of the big things that led to Thatcherism. It's interesting because when Margaret Thatcher does come in, you know, as you say, she puts into place a lot of measures that make it harder for people to go on strike in the future so Mm. that you don't end up with the same crisis as the 1970s. At the same time, when she came in, she did actually agree to a pay deal to avert strikes. She wasn't sort of completely holding out against people who were calling for more. When Mrs Thatcher first comes in, her Chancellor Geoffrey Howe signs off a 26% pay increase for lots and lots of workers, which listeners may think that's completely at odds with the Mrs Thatcher I've heard about. I think this is a bit of history that gets forgotten. 
It is, it is. But over the next decade, it's very easy to parody Thatcher as a leader who did the sort of never, never, never Dr. No thing and never settled an industrial dispute and went to war with the unions. That's not strictly true. You know, you look at the miners, yes, um, the miners go on strike in 1984. Uh, Thatcher um, holds firm. She's built up the UK's reserves of coal in the meantime. She doesn't reverse the pit closures. You know, she doesn't give in to Scargill. But there are lots of other strikes. The last ambulance strike in 1989 to 1990. Eventually, the government, Mrs. Thatcher's government, does give way on that. So it's not as simple or straightforward as as the 26% pay rise that they agreed to in their first period in office shows. It was never as simple with Thatcher as saying no to everything. There were occasions on which she did settle industrial disputes, but overall the picture was upending the assumptions on which British politics had worked for many years before, which was that mass unemployment was the thing to be avoided. And so being much more prepared to settle industrial disputes via increased pay was the price of that. But the inflationary consequences of that leads Thatcher's government to a place where it's prepared to think the unthinkable in the name of stamping out inflation. Just explain to us the key difference, I suppose. So, you know, the 1970s, as you've painted it, very similar in terms of there's an economic shock from the outside, energy prices go up, the whole of the economy is placed under strain and everybody obviously wants their wages to go up to keep up with inflation, which ends up causing even more inflation, it turns into a spiral. What are the differences between then and now? Well, look, firstly, union membership has declined dramatically. And it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. Does union membership decline because the powers of unions decrease? Well, right now, or rather in 2021, only 23% of workers in this country were members of trade unions. So clearly, the fewer people are unionised, the less industrial action we'll see. And that's one of the reasons why this period of industrial unrest is so striking. Because, if you'll pardon that pun, which was totally unintentional, fewer members of trade unions exist to strike. The other key differences are the sort of legislative consequences of the period of industrial unrest we saw in the 70s. Margaret Thatcher was elected in 79, and her animating mission wasn't to crush the unions necessarily. It was to get a handle on inflation, do everything it took to get it under control. And a large part of that was curtailing the power of trade unions. So you see union reforms like the ban on secondary picketing, thresholds increasing before people can go on on strike. Nationalised industries are privatised, which has its own effect on union membership. When we have a Conservative government who come in in 2015, more trade union reforms are passed, which again raises the bar that unions have to meet before they go on strike. But despite all of this, now we're seeing a new era of industrial action. You know, it's significantly harder for large-scale strikes to happen in this country for that range of reasons yet they're still happening. And that tells its own story about the trade union movement and how perhaps it's changed in the period since and the political complexion of its leadership. But more prosaically, it tells its own story about the state of the economy and wages in this country. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So even though we may not see as many strikes as the 1970s, in a way, the people who are striking are measurably angrier. <laughs> you know, the, the threshold is now so much higher to be able to strike that that tells us something anyway. Yeah, quite possibly. And look, during the 70s, clearly, striking is part of the muscle memory of those workforces. Workplaces, you know, industrial relations were dysfunctional then as compared to now, by all accounts. 
but lots of workforces are out of the habit of striking now, not least because it's more difficult. So if ballots are consistently being returned in favour of industrial action, that does show that, you know, unionised workers in this country are unhappy with their paying conditions and are being led by people who are sort of very effective at organising them. Coming up, what are the government doing in response to the strikes? And is there any chance of them being called off? But first. I'm Mehreen Khan, economics editor at The Times. My job involves covering an extraordinary moment in the global and UK economy, where central bankers and governments are contending with runaway inflation, the pandemic and a war in Europe. We can only do this thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We may be used to things shutting down for Christmas, but this year will be like none other, with strikes set to continue through the rest of the month and into the new year. How is the government responding to the demands of the unions? Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak are determined not to give in to the high pay demands that some unions are making, right? There is no question, for instance, they're going to give the nurses 19% or anything like it because of that same concern that animated governments in the 70s and the 80s, which is if you give in to these high pay demands, it embeds inflation in the system and you get a wage price spiral. 
And look, I know things are difficult right now for everyone because of what's happening with inflation. And that's why our plans that we outlined last week will get a grip of inflation and bring it down. That's really important. And in the meantime, what the unions are asking for, I think, is a 19% pay rise. And I think most people watching will, will recognise that that's obviously unaffordable. The tactic, and whether this amounts to a sensible strategy, is another question. The tactic is to wait for public opinion to turn on the strikers and basically wait this one out. That, in the immediate term, means you have to fill gaps in public service provision, which is why you're seeing soldiers being brought in to drive ambulances, to fill gaps in the health service, to man border stations at airports. This is all costing the government 10 million quid a week, by the way, according to the Times. And then in the longer term, the government's tactic is to wait for public opinion to turn on the strikers. Now, will that be sustainable or not? Who knows? There are clearly signs that both governments and the unions are prepared to compromise. For instance, nurses in Scotland have agreed to a pay deal while nurses in England haven't. My door is open and I continue uh, to have discussions with trade unions. I'm keen to work with them on a range of issues that they've raised with me because what staff say is whilst pay is a factor and that's why we have the independent process, it's not the only factor that impacts on staff. You've got Steve Barclay, the health secretary, talking about his position has shifted as we speak from there's no question of nurses getting any more money to, well, perhaps we can resolve this with a one-off bonus. So clearly there is room for manoeuvre, despite the government's rhetorical position at least, being we can't yield an inch because it will only encourage further inflation. So negotiations are negotiations, and, and, but they, are, they take two sides to actually have a conversation. And at the moment, the biggest problem we have is not what our ask is, it's having someone to talk to. And, that, and that's really what we're urging the government and continue to urge the government to do is be pragmatic, be reasonable, don't get entrenched, and please come and have a conversation with us about pay and about, about safe staffing. And do you think we're likely to see more movement on this in the next week or two? Do you think the government will end up agreeing just a bonus or more than a bonus? <laughs> like every political <laughs> reporter, right? Bit you of know, glass ball gazing. Yes, exactly. exactly. Look, that Steve Bartley is now offering a one-off payment tells its own story, and that's that the government has recognised its position can't hold, and that there will be some sort of deal, and that a deal has happened in Scotland, does suggest that unions' positions aren't perhaps as compromising as they are either. You know, look at what's also happened with rail workers, right? There are a number of rail unions, of which the McLynch is RMT, the public face of this strike is one. But you've also, in the past week, had the Transport Salaried Staffs Association agree to a pay deal with Network Rail, which the RMT haven't yet accepted. There is clearly movement behind the scenes other union leaders are making deals with ministers that do imply that there are grounds for compromise despite the sort of uncompromising rhetoric we're seeing from both sides of the minute. The government are now talking about, in the new year, bringing in new legislation which will again make it tougher for, for people to strike. Just tell us a bit about that. What do we know about it so far? It was in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, this idea that the government would legislate to impose an obligation on striking 
public sector workforces that require them to provide a minimum service level. Say if you're a railwoman or a nurse or work in another public facing public service that you would have to provide a minimum level of service. When it comes to trains, that's a uh, the norm in much of continental Europe. But this is something that several successive governments have tried to do, but always uh, have tended to shirk from it. David Cameron floated such legislation. It was in the 2019 Tory manifesto. Um, and look, the reason no government has done it thus far is that these things are always tricky and trade unions are, uh, despite being much diminished compared to their historical standing, are pretty good at negotiation that's what they do and it takes a lot of political capital risk widespread industrial unrest so no government has done it this is something that's now being threatened and briefed by rishi sunak's government the union leaders to continue to be unreasonable then it is my duty to take action to protect the lives and livelihoods of the british public and that's why mr speaker since i became prime minister i have been working for new tough laws to protect people from this disruption. Whether we'll see the legislation anytime soon is another question. We've not seen a date, we've not seen any uh, draft bill, but it's certainly uh, something that Conservative MPs, I imagine, uh, will be very, very keen uh, to see the government do, if only to prevent another wave of strikes, say, next winter. And Patrick, where does Labour stand on, on all of this? Well, it's a very good question. Labour at the minute is dancing on the head of a pin. Still, even despite the recent uptick in donations from private individuals, the Labour Party is dependent on union cash for much of its day-to-day existence. Indeed, it is the party of organised labour. Unions have a seat on Labour's ruling national executive. You have to be a member of a trade union if you want to be a Labour MP, for instance. So that relationship is one that is always tricky for a Labour leader who aspires to govern in the national interest and govern as a a broad and not wholly sectional party. It's very tricky. And, you know, every Labour prime minister has a history of difficult relations with trade unions. And Keir Starmer is no exception in that he's not given his full-throated backing to to strikers. He's banned Labour front benches from picket lines. And his line has been a sort of, at times, slightly tortured line, which is... Both sides need to compromise. Both sides need to finish the negotiations and the government needs to drive them forward. The government's been sitting on its hands in this. Um, that's not good enough. And I think if you... But don't ask me to endorse the strikers because I'm not going to do that. And that's partly a an aversion to being parodied as a, a left-wing Labour leader of old, but it's also a reflection on the financial and fiscal constraints a Labour government will face. You don't want to necessarily give succor to unions asking for lots and lots of money because the, there's an awareness in the Labour Party that should they come to power uh, and should yeah. inflation not have abated by then, they will be in a similar position. You said that government policy now really seems to be about, you know, running the clock down and waiting for public opinion to sway. Where is the public on these strikes at the moment? It's very interesting in that if you look at the polling, there is widespread sympathy for, say, nurses, with the obvious caveat that the nurses have only been on strike for one day, but public sympathy for railway workers, for instance, has dwindled quite significantly since the 
the height of Mick Lynch mania in the summer. And so you do see uh, strikes continue as the impact is brought to bear on the public when pay deals are made and rejected and seen to be rejected as the negotiation runs its course, you do see public support dwindle and grind down. And that's the calculation the government are making, that these numbers can only go in one direction. And Patrick, looking ahead to 2023, how much more of this do you think we'll see? Well, look, a large part of the answer to that question lies as it did in the 1970s and as it has for much of this year, in inflation. So if inflation persists in double figures and the pay deals that are struck during this period of industrial unrest, because ultimately these disputes have to end in deals, there's no appetite for indefinite strikes, but it will depend on whether those deals in a year's time, in six months' time, look like they are keeping real wages in line with inflation. So much will depend on the economic picture and how politicians respond to it. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times Red Box editor and strikes expert, Patrick Maguire. You can follow all of The Times' coverage of the strikes online at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. The producer today was Edward Drummond, with production help from Taryn Siegel. The executive producer today was James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find us. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Thank you.